0: Now, welcome back to another endoscopy news podcast. Now, we are standing at the threshold of a new chapter in how we monitor our sedated patients. Um, Nowadays, we can offer patients procedures which 20 years ago were unthinkable, procedures which improves health and saves lives. However, these procedures are usually longer and more uncomfortable, and therefore, patients require more analgesia and sedation than in the past. Now, unfortunately, at the same time, our patients are older and with more comorbidities than in the past. And this dual problem of frail patients requiring deeper sedation for the more uncomfortable procedures has narrowed our therapeutic sedation window. Now, the old way we had of monitoring patients with a nurse and an oxygen saturation monitor is no longer enough. And it's for this reason that the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges in February 2021 updated the role guidelines from nine years ago. Now they recommend that patients requiring moderate sedation, uh, moderate sedation is uh, in my books, when the patient stops talking to you, but they still reply when you speak to them. Uh, they need to be monitored more closely, uh, not only by a dedicated nurse and oxygen saturation monitor, but also with ECG, blood pressure and capnography. Now of course, this is a huge change for nursing staff. It's no longer enough that they look down at the patient to make sure that they're comfortable and well, but they now also need to look up and assess the ECG and capnography traces and the blood pressure. Now. With me to discuss the issues around safe sedation training and capnography in endoscopy are Dr. Martin Lees, Clinical Director of Cardiac Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine at St. Paul's Heart Centre in London, and Nurse Specialist Andrea Trigo with Sedate UK, an organisation which delivers accredited training in safe sedation and how to monitor patients with these new recommended gadgets. Martin, what is capnography and what job does it do on your anaesthetic trolley?
1: Oh, thanks Bjorn. So, capnography is a way to monitor and measure the amount of carbon dioxide in the environment. Now, typically there is very little in atmospheric air, but when a patient breathes in and out, the monitor can analyse the gases passing the sampling port and detect the presence of carbon dioxide and produce a waveform. You use it to to monitor the
0: breathing in and breathing out. You get a waveform, it's a closed circuit on an aesthetic tron, isn't it? So, is there anything you can deduce from the waveform, from changing the waveforms?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, as long as the sampling port is somewhere near where the carbon dioxide is being produced, it will produce a waveform that you can interpret together with other clinical signs which will give you a very good idea about the adequacy of the patient's breathing. Uh, In anaesthesia, we typically use it with relatively closed systems, such as an endotracheal tube or a laryngeal mask airway. And then the result, the the peak value of the carbon dioxide, equates to the value in the blood. It's less accurate in that relation in when we use it in an open system such as a Hudson mask or a set of nasal cannulae but nonetheless it's a very reliable indicator of uh, ventilation, the ability of the patients to be able to breathe in and out.
0: And I've noticed certainly with my own anaesthetic colleagues that come and join me on my endoscopy list that uh, occasionally they, they don't want to put the patient Full, uh, fully, asleep, fully fully ventilate the patient, paralyze the patient, and then they will trickle in some uh, propofol. But they're still very keen to have the capnography, and um, usually they create some sort of shenanigans where the little capnography probe is situated very close to the patient's mouth yeah. to, to still provide monitoring. But again, that's... then. The probe is in is not in a closed circuit. It's just next to the patient's mouth, and I guess you will lose some information in that in that change.
1: Yeah, you need to bear in mind that the rate of fresh gas flow to the device, whether it's nasal cannulae or a, a face mask uh, type device, will will dilute the gases available to the sampling port. So when that happens at very high flow rates, potentially the peak. Expired CO2 will be diluted by the incoming oxygen. And that will appear relatively lower, but you will still see a waveform, most likely. You'd have to have very high flow rates um, and a very low breathing for there not to be a measurable carbon dioxide. And what I think we need to re- realise is that companies have developed modified uh, oxygen delivery devices to take account of this with their designs. So they now are able to both deliver oxygen to the patients and monitor carbon dioxide in almost every clinical circumstance. So that is no longer a problem.
0: So this will be the mouthpiece, uh, for example?
1: Yeah, there are three methods. There's basically the sort of simple nasal prongs, the nasal cannulae, uh, nasal specs. These are devices that sort of uh fix in the nostrils and deliver oxygen up the nostrils but at the same time monitor carbon dioxide in some way through perforations in the end holes of the of the nasal spec or or we have something like a, a variable or fixed performance device as a face mask a clear plastic face mask with elasticated straps and that you see commonly around the hospital and they have a secondary sampling port so where the oxygen comes in is where the typically the white or the green tubing supplies the the fresh gas to the patient but typically now there's an additional monitoring port to the side or below where the oxygen comes in and of course as the patient breathes out the gases are sort of some extent retarded as they leave the mask and that is the opportunity for the uh, capnography monitoring to uh, entrain or or suck in the gases at a rapid rate and analyze them as they're going in and out of the patient's mouth or nose and then there's the final there's a sort of design enhancement by Medtronic which is the guardian bite block and that's I think particularly useful for the gastroenterology community, because it's a specifically designed bite block to accommodate both the um, gastroscope or, or, or device, deliver oxygen around the bite block, and also monitor the carbon dioxide around the bite block. And these have required, you know, specific design implementations, and they work very well.
0: I guess me as a gastroenterologist, I. I think that the only, the only game in town is endoscopy. But of course, sedation is administered for all sorts of procedures throughout the hospital. And a supplemental oxygen is at every bedside. And of course, if you've got an obtundant patient for any reason uh, requiring supplemental oxygen, it makes sense to monitor respiration, doesn't it?
1: Of course. And it's been a minimum monitoring standard in anaesthesia for over 25, 30 years It's been a minimum monitoring standard in recovery units where the sort of patient you just described is typically found for uh, more than 10 years. And it's now obligatory in environments such as uh, transfer of critically ill patients where there's artificial ventilation going on, but also in accident emergency departments. So it is becoming far more widespread and and mandatory in in almost every environment, and arguably it should be should be mandatory in the sedation environment too, where there's such a large volume of cases with such a present um, risk of of respiratory compromise, which we know is the commonest problem during sedation, and and as we know as anesthetists, capnography is the best way to detect any form of respiratory compromise.
0: I must admit it's one of the games I play on uh, on newbie endoscopist I say to them. Uh, I, I asked them two questions. One, what is the most important piece of kit in this room? And they inevitably look at the, uh, point at the endoscope. I say, no, no, it's the oxygen saturation meter. That's the most important thing. And then I put the clip on their finger and asked them to hold their breath to see how long it takes for the oxygen saturation to drop. And of course, they start to get uncomfortable and feel that they have to breathe long before the oxygen saturation starts to drop. I've been practicing, I must admit, Martin, so I can get my saturation down to about 92% now. But then I just have to breathe. And I've, hold, I've held my breath for two, three minutes by then. So, oh, but I've been practicing for, for 10 years, Martin. it's getting, I'm getting better.
1: We share a common interest in holding our breath because one of our instruction videos does exactly the same. We, we try and make the point that, saturation is very important, pulse oximetry very important, but it can be slightly misleading because it is possible to not breathe for about two minutes as a relatively healthy adult without your saturation dropping to alarming levels if you're relatively fit and potentially if you're receiving supplemental oxygen that could take even longer. So I can hold my breath for nearly two minutes and my sats don't go to 90 until about one minute 40. So I think that's why Andrea and I set up together with Dr. Craig Cook, um, Sedate UK, because we felt that there was this glaring gap in knowledge, skills, and to be honest, monitoring, which we are now addressing. And I think we've moved from a situation where we train a multitude of different specialty groups. When we first started about 10 to 20%, percent were using capnography regularly during procedural sedation now it's moved up to about sort of 50 60% but we do often find that you know the room can reply saying only 40% are using capnography so it varies from sort of session to session but we know it's improved but there's still a lot more work to be done so andrea
0: you run these accreditation courses uh, training doctors and nurses in sedation is accredited course with the Royal College of Anaesthetists uh, and the Royal College of Nursing how do you approach uh, quite a large and difficult topics like safe sedation.
2: As a group, we sat together for many hours over many, many months to write up what we call the handbook of safe sedation. This was a book that in its beginning had over 100 pages of content. And then we started trimming it down. How can we simplify these concepts? How can we make it really easy for people to understand? Because as healthcare professionals, we're working in ever more complex environments. There's medical knowledge coming out every day. And we need to make really complex decisions in environments that are very complex with more information that our brain cannot retain or process. So we want to make it really easy for people to understand the concepts they need to understand to make sure they are practicing safely.
0: So this is um, the theory of sedation as well as some simulation training.
2: Yes, absolutely. So in order to learn how to sedate, you can't just have theory. You need to be able to have practical skills. Um, We follow the curriculum that has been defined by the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges in its initial documents, the green cover document, the first sedation guidelines from October 2013. So we follow that curriculum to make sure that staff have airway skills, they know about capnography. they know the monitoring, they know the drugs, they know how to manage complications, they know how to pre-assess patients. So all of those boxes are sort of ticked in that curriculum. And we make sure that we pass on that knowledge in different ways. So we make sure that people learn in different ways. People, some people like learning by reading, others by watching, others by doing. So when they come on our course, we use these advanced learning techniques that mean we are passing the same information in different formats to make sure we're reaching to everyone in the room. And by the end, no matter where they are in their safe sedation skills journey, they will be a bit better. And that is our overall goal.
0: I must admit that I find sedation a little bit like cooking. I have like a like a foundation, like a basic recipe that I then adapt depending on what the patient tells me. So it's like the uh, the waiter in the restaurant asking, "How would you like your beef?" For example, patients who are concerned about pain, they get a they get a shot of fentanyl, probably only fentanyl and nothing else. Uh, anxious patients, uh, they also, in addition to the fentanyl, because I use. Fentanyl to me is like potatoes. It's like the, the basic thing usually in my own practice. Uh, they get a small dose of medazolam. I, I do worry a bit about medazolam, particularly in elderly people. because I think it makes elderly people quite unsteady for quite a long time. And you know, they can be safely sedated in here, but if they then fall over and break their hip in the afternoon, that's not a success for my sedation. <laughs> so I use very little medazolam, quite often half a milligram in the elderly
2: I think that is, um, you nailed it, because we need to teach people how to how patients uh, always have variability in their response when it comes to sedation, it's not a one recipe fits all. So we have our basic ingredients, typically like you mentioned, the fentanyl, Midaslam, those are the two we, we've been using in our protocols. But we need to take into consideration the procedure itself. It's a painful procedure. If it's a long procedure, we need to to take into consideration the patient as well. How sleepy does the patient want to be or how aware does he feel comfortable? How anxious is the patient? What, What comorbidities does this patient have? And based on that, then we need to make decisions on the dosing. And this is an iterative process because we might decide that initial dose, but the patient might still respond differently to what we were expecting. Typically, nurses who maybe aren't so used to making those decisions, they're probably more used to giving drugs that have been prescribed at a specific dose at a specific time. We need to teach them that skill. Um, interpreting the clinical signs from the capnograph, from the patient's level of awareness, in order to make those important clinical decisions.
0: In in these, we've been removing the word sedation from our information leaflet. I I think that if a patient is told that he or she would be given sedation, they expect that they'll be asleep. And when they're not asleep, they think they've been shortchanged. I was told I'd be sedated. I try... To avoid the word sedation, instead I use the word injection. You've got to have an injection. And I try to be a bit more specific than that. See, so if the patient's concerned with pain, I say, are oh, you going to get a very strong shot of painkiller? You're going to need some medasla as well. I would say words like, I will give you, I'll give you an injection to relax you a little bit, to make the, the procedure feel quicker. But I don't use the word sedation.
1: That's a really good point. I do a lot of cardiology cath lab sedation and quite often the patients have been told a, ma- a variety of things or have had a variety of experiences previously and uh, I clarify that up straight away. I say sedation is not the same as anesthesia and you may well remember some or all of this procedure, but our key uh, aim is to make sure that you're comfortable, pain-free and relaxed. And the necessity to be unconscious is removed. I think once patients understand that, they feel actually some of them quite relieved that they're not getting some sort of anesthetic on the on the cheap. And I think the, the expectation of some operators is that sedation is anesthesia without an anesthetist. So with half the staff. So we, we sort of try and avoid that misconception. In fact, in the guidelines from 2013, which is really a fantastic document, brilliant piece of work by Prof Sneed and colleagues, uh, we're looking at f- analgesia-based sedation. So because of the synergy of the drugs such as fentanyl and midazolam, you can get away with much lower doses of both, but achieve a perfectly acceptable result with a greater, much better safety margin. And using, uh, and that's what I do in my own practice, I make sure the patient experiences very limited pain or no pain at all based on largely opiates such as fentanyl or or some, some colleagues use diamorphine or morphine, and um, and we can achieve that. And they they often get a degree of sort of s- s- anxiety relief really, from that. And it's not necessarily to give a large amount of midazolam. You
0: mentioned the, the guidelines there, and they haven't really caught up with the published evidence. There's been studies... Of the use of capnography in sedated patients, not just in endoscopy, but in in the hospital environment more more broadly. There's even been a meta analysis of all the studies back in, I think, 2017 in in BMJ Open. They concluded that adding capnography to your oxygen saturation and your direct nurse monitoring of the patient reduces the risk of both mild and severe hypoxic episodes. And then more pertinent to endoscopy, there was a study by Ralph Bishops who, who reported a, a 1 in 10 very high risk of endoscopic adverse respiratory events, and that was halved with use of capnography. So there's lots of evidence that it's actually a, a good thing. There was a recent study from uh, Addenbrooks, wasn't it? it? I think it's in press in the May frontiers in medicine, and they reported a One in seven risk of a respiratory adverse event, which dropped to about one in ten with the use of a capnography, and one in one in twenty-five risk of a cardiac event, which dropped to about one in a hundred with capnography.
1: Uh, It's a brilliant service evaluation of the impact of capnography and I think that's a real world example of how capnography can reduce the complication rate in a wide spectrum of procedures including cardiology, interventional radiology and gastroenterology.
0: The study from what they called it a service evaluation uh, review or something Mm. like that. You can pick holes in each individual but all the arrows are pointing in the same direction and it's therefore surprising that the Safe endoscopy guidelines haven't really caught up with this. I, I know the the American guidelines from two thousand and eighteen kind of vaguely recommended that capnography should be considered in patients given deep sedation or propofol, which of course it's hard to break that guideline because you said yeah, considered it and discarded it as a, as not really <laughs> relevant. Or the or the more recent UK joint BSG uh, slash Royal College of Anaesthetic statement from two thousand and nineteen, which also mentioned that capnography is something which should be available to the anaesthetist. Of course it's available to the anaesthetist because it's on their trolleys. And, and you know, you can't separate an anaesthetist from the anaesthetic trolley. At least we can't in Leeds to come and go together wherever they're moving in the unit.
1: You know, as as different committees start to overlap and as the body of evidence, the published evidence, starts to harden up, I think already you can see that the update to the original 2013 guidelines has strengthened its recommendation. So it was reviewed again, the the joint Academy of Medical Royal Colleges uh, position in 2021. And the latest published guidance strongly recommends capnography. And I think this is the sort of grandfather recommendation from which all the other societies should take their lead. And I think they're just slightly out of step. Perhaps they were reviewing guidance before that review in 21 came out. But I think the next set of reviewed guidelines from, will re- more strongly or indeed mandate capnography use. It's used everywhere else. I don't honestly see why you wouldn't use it in procedural sedation. It seems anomalous.
0: The published evidence is overwhelming that uh, capnography yes. reduces uh, hypoxic episodes. And it's almost like saying, well, transient hypoxia doesn't matter.
1: Well, I think we see transient hypoxemia in patients without significant impact, you know, the majority of the time transient, i.e. less than sort of a minute or or whatever. So as the Society of Injury Anesthesia, uh, the World Severe adverse event list uh, highlights uh hypoxemia into different categories and effectively severe desaturation sort of under under 75% or prolonged desaturation for more than a minute is considered a really serious event and i would agree with that so you know if that happens in your sedation you have got a massive problem on your hands and from what we can see from the people we are training early recognition of respiratory compromise, i.e. not breathing, is vital because their skill level to rescue that situation is not as practiced or complete as uh, an experienced anesthetist would be. So their ability to resolve the problem is also limited. So late detection and limited skills results in prolonged desaturation. So... We're not really talking about brief desaturation. We're talking about an inability to rescue the situation. And capnography is the guardian which stands between you and the coroner.
0: So in other words, the patients who develop a persistent apneic episode, at some point in the timeline, that was a transient that became persistent if it wasn't spotted in
1: time. It could have been spotted within two lack of breaths. So we teach on our course that the waveform, if it's dwindling or reducing, you can see that there's a rate of change leading to potentially nothing. And to some extent, when I'm sedating patients with ultra-powerful opioids such as remifentanil, the end point of my sedation is reversible apnea. So once I'm happy that the patient is almost apneic, And I can rouse them with simple voice commands, which you can do very well with drugs like remifentanil, which cannot be used by non-anesthetists. But the principle is the same. Then you have reached the end point of your desired sedation level to some extent. And knowing that you can recover that situation rapidly is very important. And and capnography gives you the instant feedback on that situation. Unless, of course, you are watching the abdomen and the chest and, and sitting absolutely right next to the patient
0: and i have noticed that exactly what i do when i give the sedation i watch the patient very very carefully and if i then find that the oxygen saturation starts to kind of go down and the patient's breathing less i then very quickly go on with my intubation to kind of wake the patient up a bit again yeah but if the same thing happens towards the end of my procedure uh, perhaps after a top-up then I'm very quick to put in the reversal agent to bring the patient back up again because they're already fully stimulated, so to speak, and they're still falling asleep. So it's it's much more serious uh, development.
1: So Andrea might want to talk a little bit about titration to effect, because what you're talking about there is a sort of extended impact of sedation in an environment where it's no longer desirable or necessary. And that is where we have modified the protocols that we teach to use short acting agents that are titrated to a specific effect and are likely to wear off in the time frame that makes practical sense. So I've been involved in the investigation of a number of incidents relating to procedural failure. sedation failure and some of those incidents are related to long-acting agents not wearing off after the procedure is over and resulting in problems either in the recovery area or on the ward.
0: That's an important point isn't it Andrea That, that this monitoring it doesn't stop when the patient is rolled out of the the darkened room.
2: For us we always teach the most important monitor is the staff taking care of the patients? Because without you, you the monitor in itself would not be able to to do much, really. So it's the staff who is able to interpret what he's looking at in the catnograph, in the pulse oximeter, and all the other monitoring devices. And that needs to carry on from the procedure to the recovery room as well. And that's why this titration to effect is so important. And For us the effect that we want is a patient who is purposefully responding to us. A purposeful response is a patient where if we call his name he will be able to respond, open his eyes, he'll be able to talk to us. So a proposal response to voice or to light tactile stimulation is our target. We cannot really go below that as as non-anesthetists. We can only continue sedating if we continually monitor the level of sedation, the level of alertness, if we continuously monitor the breeding. And that continues to recovery because our patients don't stop, uh, I mean, the drugs don't stop having an, e- an effect on the patient once they finish the procedure. So typically, we will need to continue monitoring all the same parameters. And I would say if we use reversals like you were mentioning, we typically say you need to recover for an extra hour because we never know if our patients may become resedated after they've been um, uh, reversed as well.
0: I guess we've got broadly three types of patients in endoscopy. is the ones that just have uh, local anesthesia, throat spray, and then at the other extremes you have ASA-4 level patients. These are very severe ill patients. And for them, we either would just offer throw spray or if they're having more significant procedure, we'll we'll ask for anesthetic support. But in between those two extremes, we have a huge cohort of patients who are undergoing. Their, well, that cohort is now probably older and more morbid than they were in the 90s when I started to do endoscope. And now we're doing much longer procedures on these poor patients, much longer, much more uncomfortable procedures. The demand for anesthesia or or more comfortable sedation is just growing. Propofol is is of course the drug that's been used in Europe a lot for nurse-led anesthesia. Is that something you talk about on the courses?
2: Propofol is tricky. I think we've looked into that as a group. We both recognize that it's a very useful drug but we need to work within the, you know, legal limitations of the country where we're practicing. So in the UK, typically nurses will not be able to administer propofol uh, unless there is an anesthetist immediately available in the room. So typically for pain procedures where the doctor performing the procedure is already an anesthetist, or if your hospital has um, policies, guidelines, with protocols saying that nurses can do it within these circumstances and they are legally protected and supported to do so. So I would say that in the vast majority probably over 90% of cases nurses do not administer propofol even though it's um, a drug that has been used in the US, in Europe and Martin maybe you can
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think the specific limitation there is that propofol should only be prescribed and is only licensed for use by doctors and others who are trained in advanced airway management skills. Because, as I think we haven't touched on yet, sedation is a continuum. It's not one dose equals one response. And that continuum can easily descend into general anaesthesia if the patient's comorbid status is unpredicted or the drugs administered are uh, too too large in their doses or, or or if you're just having an unlucky day everyone's different so if we were expecting moderate sedation we potentially could end up with general anesthesia and we need those skills to be able to rescue that situation the problem with propofol is that the 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 chance that you'll end up with general anesthesia with a little bit more is much greater than with midazolam and fentanyl in low doses So the margin of safety is so much less and the required skills are so much more that it just isn't worth the risk for most institutions and and staff members. We're asked this a lot on our courses and although we've attempted to to raise the profile of this issue with the Royal College of Anesthetists, I think it's fair to say There's no great appetite to resolve this conundrum at the moment in the UK. It's a very complicated problem and there needs to be a a sort of multidisciplinary approach to it, which is better training. I think with intermediate skilled staff who are now physician associates in anaesthesia who have two years of specialist training who can use propofol under under close supervision, i.e., ninety seconds response of a, a, a trained anesthetist, this now becomes a reality, and this will be the future.
0: So that would then be an anesthetic nurse, say in there could be one anesthetist looking after two or three endoscopy rooms with anesthetic nurses in each room um, monitoring the, the the sedation in each room.
1: Term changes, but I think the latest term is physician associates with a specialisation in anaesthesia, that does allow that specialist group of of practitioners to work under the supervision uh, and deliver propofol-based sedation and other drugs too, including remifentanil. And also we must note that for non-anesthetists, there are new new drugs on the horizon as well. Uh, I think we can talk about this drug. It's only recently achieved a licence in the UK uh, and that's remimazolam, which is an ultra-short-acting version of midazolam metabolized in a different new novel way but effectively the midazolam molecule and and that will mitigate some of the hangover effect by being uh, metabolized in in a in a uh, i understand about 12 minutes
0: well the therapeutic window is more narrow isn't it again yes it hits you harder quicker
1: yeah, hits you harder, quicker and wears off faster. So it's a bit like, the, it's similar to the difference between morphine and remifentanil. So remifentanil is an ultra short acting opioid that acts just like morphine, but with an independent method of metabolism that does not depend on the kidneys and liver. And it's the same with remimazolam, which is the newer, quicker version potentially of midazolam.
0: Certainly in Leeds, we've been won over by all these arguments and We can't see any reason for not adding capnography monitoring to our patients, Uh, endoscopy patients who already uh, monitor oxygen saturation, blood pressure and ECG. We now got an order for 16 capnography modules to slip into our Philips Modular uh, monitoring stands.
1: We typically don't invite the general staff of an environment to use the anesthetic machine because there can be complications and issues and risks with that. For instance, there are vaporizers on the back and it is possible to give oxygen to the patient but accidentally switch a vaporizer on and it is feasible to start anesthetizing people by accident. So generally, staff in a cath lab or an endoscopy suite won't be leaning on the anesthetic machine and looking which bits they can use. I think there needs to be an important training piece to help people understand how to safely use the capnography monitoring equipment that is usually possible straight off the monitor and in the situations such as maybe standalone fertility clinics which don't have anesthesia machines necessarily in every environment capnography standalone monitoring is 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 easy to acquire from you know any big manufacturer such as Medtronic and I think um, Andrea was going to talk about how how you can practice using a capnography monitor without actually using it in a patient
2: yeah so uh, a few months ago we came across this game developed by Medtronic it's called airway x and you can download it for on the app stores and basically what it does you can practice how to give sedation to patients and then recover them from complications related to capnography so I think it's quite a fun way of learning the different waveforms that you can see in sedation practice, so that when you are in a real environment, you can you actually already know a bit about what, what the curves mean and what you need to do to recover patients from, for example, hypoventilation.
0: That is the setup on a closed-circuit anaesthetic circuit, is it, When you can really analyze the, the waveforms, for obstructive patterns, etc., bronchospasm. But an, in an endoscopy kind of situation, you just have a pattern which I guess dwindles as the patient falls too, too deep asleep and, and stops breathing. It just goes more and more flat and intermittent, I guess.
2: Like you mentioned, it will never be the perfect curve like we see in a closed circuit or like we see in textbooks but we can see what does it look like normally whilst the patient still doesn't have any sedative drugs in the system, and how does it look afterwards. And that is a very important fact that we always highlight in our training. Connect the patient before you start sedating, so you understand the before and the after.
1: Yeah, and I think its main role in sedation practice is as a respiratory rate monitor. That's really its main role. The diagnosis of bronchospasm or COPD or low cardiac output state, which is possible if you're on a ventilator with an ET tube, is, is totally irrelevant in the context of procedural sedation. And I think in the past, there's been quite a lot of focus on training people to understand abnormal waveforms. But in reality, that is not relevant to procedural sedation. It is merely an indicator of a respiratory rate.
0: The breathing tails off. The patient breathes less, less deeply, and less frequently. The machine will alarm within seconds, whilst the oxygen saturation yeah. monitor will alarm in in three minutes' time. I think future endoscopists, well, future hospitals will book back on this time, I think, oh, good Lord, back in those days, you know, the whole monitoring was just woefully inadequate. Was it no wonder that there were problems at times? And I say, well, you know, we only have a problem every 100 procedures or so.
1: It's simply not good enough. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I still find it surprising <laughs> the level of staffing and the inadequacy of monitoring in many of these remote, slightly risky environments. So we're doing our best to make it better. And uh, hopefully we'll come back to this in five years time and say things have improved.
0: Yes, let's hope so, Martin. Thanks to Martin and Andrea for this interesting discussion of the changes in monitoring and sedation practices, which are just around the corner.
2: Um,
0: Thank you to Medtronic who provided the sponsorship and also, of course, thank you to all of you for listening. Please tune in again a little later in the summer for our next Endoscopy News podcast.